Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Ian Shanahan, the editor of Green Teacher Magazine, about environmental education. So welcome to the interview, Ian. Great to be here, Markham. Look, before we start talking about environmental education, a topic which I'm, I know almost nothing about, and I'm really looking forward to learning a lot in this interview, uh, we should mention that Energy Media and Green Teacher Magazine have formed a partnership. We're going to be working together to pro- we'll produce content. You'll help us with the pedagogical uh, things that need to be done to that content and then help to distribute it to your very large audience in North American teachers. And I have to tell you, we're very excited about it. Likewise, we're really excited about the possibilities ahead. Yeah. So, and of course, this is full disclosure because these kind of relationships need to be disclosed and we don't want, we want our, our viewers or listeners to, to know that. So yep, let's, sure. ta- let's talk about environmental education. Um, as I said, I don't know much about it. Why don't we just start with kind of an overview from your point of view of what environmental education is? Yeah. Environmental education encompasses a wide range of disciplines, you could call them outdoor education, ecological education, nature interpretation, climate change education, sustainability education, and on and on and on. Essentially anything related to humans' relationship with nature and the natural environment falls under the broad umbrella of environmental education. Now, it certainly has evolved as a field in the time that Green Teacher has existed. Green Teacher debuted in 1986 in Wales when it was founded by a gentleman by the name of Damien Randall. It then opened a North American branch in 1991, which was run by Tim Grant and Gail Littlejohn, my predecessors. And in that time, environmental education has moved more away from teaching about environmental issues or environmental problems and more just about learning about nature, learning about humans' relationships with nature and the technologies associated with it outdoor learning, connecting people to the awe of nature, to the different life forms that we share this planet with. So it certainly has evolved as all fields do. Right. But it, it does, uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, educate students about aspects of climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, and why those are such a big problem efforts we're taking to, to combat that, that sort of thing. That's definitely a big part of it. And certainly it's a priority at the moment for obvious reasons. It's something that we're all focusing on as our various Paris targets inch ever closer. The 2030 target, of course, now only being eight years away. And there's been a lot of really groundbreaking research done in the field of climate change education specifically. I can speak to a lot of what has been done in Canada and the United States. I cannot take credit for any of it. My role with Green Teacher is uh, a series of C words, communicator, connector, curator, 
So I'm at the intersection of great work that other folks are doing, the research and the practices that they're doing. And I have the opportunity to amplify a lot of this great work so that as many educators as possible can be part of the best practices. Well, let's talk about your role at Green Teacher. And to start with that, let's give us a, a little bit about your background, please, and how you became interested in this field. Yeah, I mean, I've been interested in nature right from day one. Uh, my dad tells a story of throwing a stick at a group of purple sandpipers. Apparently, that didn't go over too well, either for my dad or for the sandpipers. But I, I've always been interested in nature and the outdoors and animals and plants. And I began volunteering at the age of about 12 at the local nature center in the nearby provincial park, and then started working in that provincial park three years later and spent actually 13 years in the Ontario park system, mainly in the education program, but also doing some species at risk surveying, which is a lot of fun. I mean, the field work, getting your boots dirty and just going out looking for critters is, is really fun, but mainly spent my time in the education field and I mentioned about nature interpretation as one of the many aspects of environmental education. And that was what I received my training in. And in fact, every spring, we would have a training session that was based on the so-called six principles of, of interpretation, according to a gentleman by the name of Freeman Tilden. And to kind of summarize all of that, it's all about connecting the tangible to intangible concepts. So for example, rather than going on, say, a walk where you're focusing on plants or trees and just saying, you know, this is a beech tree, this is a maple tree. Okay, great. But who cares? The who cares, you answer that with connecting it to an intangible. So there's been a lot of really fun research. Well, maybe fun isn't the right word. Fascinating research about how plants communicate with each other using an underground network, which also incorporates fungi. It's known as the wood wide web. And this is the work of Suzanne Samard out in the Pacific Northwest in your region. And if you're going to be doing an interpretive walk about plants, rather than just talking about the science of how plants communicate with each other, connect to this universal concept of collective survival. So rather than sort of every life form to themselves, it's this collective form of survival communication so that all life forms survive. This idea of collective survival is a concept, an intangible concept that most people can relate to much more so than just that's a maple tree, that's a beech tree, and they can communicate with each other with an underground network of roots and fungi. So well, that was sort of the foundation of the Freeman Tilden principles of interpretation. What about Green Teacher Magazine? Uh, what's in your magazine? How often does it go out? Who does it go out to? How is it used by teachers? Yeah, so our magazine is largely for educators, mostly K-12 educators, but also folks who are in non-traditional educational settings like parks, museums, nature centers. We have a lot of subscribers from faculties of education who are looking for pedagogical tips about outdoor and environmental education. And I always tell people, whether it's readers or contributors, that our magazine is sort of the realm of the what, the why, and the how. So here's an idea. This is what it is. This is why it's important. And this is how you can replicate it in your teaching practice. So our articles usually have uh, lesson or activity plans included within them. 
And everything is arranged as a resource hub. We've got over 500 resources in terms of articles from the magazine, as well as over 120 webinars, all contained in our resource hub, which is uh, accessed on a subscriber basis, which is our main source of funding, in addition to book sales. And it covers, we actually have everything categorized in 32 different topics. So I rhymed off at the beginning of this discussion, some of the subcategories within environmental education, but we've managed to come up with 32. And some of the fun ones within that are things like permaculture and biomimicry, but there are many more. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, what about gaps in environmental education within the Canadian context? Well, certainly a lot of great work has been done on, you know, getting back to climate change education about what is included within that in curricula, particularly high school curricula. As I think a lot of people know, every province and territory is kind of like its own little fiefdom. They're all very different. And what is happening in BC might be entirely different from what's happening on the opposite end of the country. And some provinces are very far ahead. I mean, British Columbia has embraced the inquiry-based model. They've embraced a lot of outdoor learning, whereas other provinces are much farther behind. And there was a really neat study done in 2019 by Seth Wines and Kim Nicholas. Seth Wines is with UBC and Kim Nicholas is with Lund University in Sweden. And they analyzed curricula across Canada related to climate change and found that there was a lot of focus on science, but not a lot of focus on solutions. And a similar finding came from Ellen Field, who does a lot of wonderful work in climate change education out of the Aurelia campus at Lakehead University. And same thing, focus on science, but not nearly enough on solutions. And also she found that there's a gap in terms of local actions, because there are still many people who see climate change as this issue for someone else, somewhere else. And unfortunately, I think recent events have very much shown people, whether it be uh, heat events, extreme floods or droughts, wildfires, that this is very much a local issue for a lot of people. And that doesn't even include redistributions of flora and fauna or declines in certain flora and fauna, either uh, directly or indirectly as a result of climate change. So there, there's a lot still missing in a lot of different provinces, but a lot of very sharp people are on the case trying to fill those gaps quite quickly. Now, at this point, I'd like to put in a, a plug for your podcast uh, and note that uh, you were kind enough to have me on for uh, three episodes to talk about the global energy transition. And the segue into what you were just uh, talking about is the idea of, of talking about solutions because yes. a lot of the, the solutions to a, 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 you know, solving the climate change puzzle is around switching from fossil fuels to clean electricity and low carbon uh, fuels like hydrogen. And so we got to talk about that on your podcast. And I, I think that uh, a lot of my listeners here would uh, would benefit or really enjoy your podcast. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about that. Well, I, I'll borrow a line that I heard in an episode of, of this podcast that you did with Seth Klein, that we aren't doing a very good job and I'm paraphrasing, but we're not doing a very good job of climate change narratives in Canada. And I agree with that. The good news, and there, there is a lot of bad news, and we certainly don't want to fall into the trap of techno-optimism or thinking that everything will work out because 
That is far from certain. However, we know that we have the technologies. We just need to scale them up and get the political will to make that happen. And we haven't done a good enough job collectively. And when I say we, I mean educators, I think a lot of people in the media of envisioning in very crisp detail what a future where we figure it all out looks like. We hear a lot about the Mad Max future, and that's important. We need to think about the worst case scenario because that is not off the table. Very much so it's not off the table. But what if we do figure it out? And what does that look like? What does your day-to-day life look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What, you know, what does it smell like? I mean, using a multi-sensory approach is a big part of my educational training from the Freeman Tilden School of Six Principles of Interpretation of including all of your senses. People need to be able to see themselves in this future where we figure things out. And this was something that we talked about in an episode of the podcast that you were on, where we were looking at future casting with realistic hope. And what are some of the practices and technologies? What are some of the job opportunities? Because we talk about climate change so often with deficit language. And this is something in many other areas of education that people are saying not to do. Yes, some things are going to change. If somebody is passionate about internal combustion engines, they are going to not have as much access to that technology. However, the flip side of that are many, many opportunities of technologies that have existed, but just haven't been scaled up yet. And we need to be talking about that because there's really exciting stuff as you and I have talked about before. Yeah, that was a, uh, that was a really interesting uh, discussion for me uh, because we were talking about how do we give students hope? Uh, I've read articles about, uh, you know, st- uh, st- students uh, being uh, despondent about the future because when they Absolutely. graduate high school, they graduate university, they enter they enter the workforce and they begin to build, you know, to think about having a family and so on. They're going to face a very, potentially a very different world than the one that, that I did uh, when I you know, graduated in the seventies and, and began the family and so on in the eighties and the one that you did. And how do we give them hope? And the argument, of course, the one that I made is that as we switch over to uh, clean, abundant, really in a, in a, inexpensive electricity, we fundamentally change the structure of the economy and of society. The same way that the internal combustion engine and cheap petroleum did beginning in the 1920s, led to uh, the uh, urbanization, deep, uh, rural depopulation, the rise of manufacturing, on and on and on and on. And the there are many people who think we're going to see a social transformation and it'll be a step forward for humanity. So while things looked pretty bleak in the 1920s, especially the 1930s, eventually, mm-hmm. the you know in the last energy transition, the, the promise was fulfilled. And we may not get to that the fulfillment of the promise for this energy transition till the 2030s. Well, I hope before then, but maybe not hope the 2030s. So. Maybe not even the 2040s. But but kids need to at least know that there is a potential better future for them. They do. And they also, I mentioned about seeing themselves in that future. And that's where a lot of the focus on local change, measurable change comes into play. 
And that goes back to the principles of place-based education. This is something championed by David Sobel, who's based out in New Hampshire. He's written a lot about this and presented a lot about this. Place-based education builds better citizens. It engages people more with the land and the people and the economy in their local areas. And there's a lot of opportunity there in terms of climate change mitigation and future casting. You know, what will your community look like as maybe a new battery plant is opened as part of the broad scale efforts to electrify? What will your community look like when food production is simplified? What jobs will that create? How will that change your day-to-day routine? So certainly a place-based approach is something that we see a lot of folks talking about. I just interviewed for our podcast a woman by the name of Lauren Madden. She's at the College of New Jersey. And New Jersey actually in June of 2020 became the first state in the U.S. to embed climate change education in all content areas from K to 12. So you know the little state that could are, is doing some really amazing stuff. And they talk about the importance of place-based approach. What does this have to do with New Jersey? What does this have to do with my community? And being a coastal state, certainly Hurricane Sandy comes up, sea level rises, redistribution of flora and fauna. Like These are real things that people can see and observe. And naturally, you're going to pay attention to things that are in your life, that are in your day-to-day routine. Now, a Green Teacher Magazine has an extensive uh, a collection of articles and other resources that that uh, teachers can use, and I suppose this applies. Anybody could really use it if they are interested in this in this topic. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, just in just in case we have some teachers listening? Yeah, well, I mean, our resource hub, as I mentioned, it's got over five hundred articles, lessons, and activities, one hundred and twenty plus webinars. And then another one of our major sources of funding is sales of our books, and everything goes back into the nonprofit. So we've got a number of different books that have been published over the years. Uh, Again, I can't take credit for any of these. My predecessors, Tim Grant and Gail Littlejohn, are to be commended for their efforts on the various books, 10 in fact. But the two most recent ones are Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. And they include local, place-based, and I think also very importantly, hands-on activities. And having these hands-on activities is something that is talked about in this great report that was done by Kristen Hargis and Marsha McKenzie from the Sustainability Education and Policy Network affiliated with the University of Saskatchewan. And they wrote a report, uh, a report called Responding to Climate Change, a Primer for K-12 Education that came out in 2020. And they talk about the importance of hands-on approaches to climate change education. And when it comes to children, and I'll borrow a David Sobel quote, he always says, no tragedies before fourth grade. So you're not going to talk about Hurricane Sandy with students in grade two, but you could do a fun outdoor activity mapping the carbon cycle where you've got kids running around and essentially playing tag as you chart the path of different carbon molecules throughout the carbon cycle. And that doesn't have to be associated with anything negative. That's just a cycle of nature. You could do something similar with the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, and having these positive associations with climate change without even really mentioning the term climate change, because that's developmentally not appropriate for students at a very young age, because they can't fully process or most cannot fully process the implications of it, but they can still build their literacy about how the carbon cycle works 
And that knowledge and that, more importantly, understanding will certainly help them down the road as they get older and start to learn about climate change and some of the not so rosy aspects of it. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Ian, about the difference between teaching environmental education in an urban setting versus a rural setting, maybe a northern setting, maybe, you know, a small city like I live in Parksville on Vancouver Island where there's 10,000 people. And if you wanted to do place-based education, you've got beaches are five minutes from the high school and, you know, forests are five minutes from the high school. There are actually small mountains. I mean, it makes it easy, but what do you do when you're in the middle of, you know, downtown Toronto? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I get this question a lot and I always appreciate it. There's a concept that Jillian Judson, she's based at Simon Fraser University, so very close to you. Uh, she's done a lot of work in imaginative ecological education. And she often gets this question, well, what if I live in downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver, et cetera? And she says that there's a difference between wilderness and wildness. I mean, wilderness is very much away from the built environment. Wildness, however, really can be anywhere. And if you think about it, even if you're in downtown Toronto, you are subjected to natural air, even though there may be synthetic pollutants in the air, you are still exposed to the makeup of air. You're still exposed to different weather events. And increasingly so, as we see more cities greening and installing things like green roofs, there are many opportunities, especially I would say in Canada, we do a very good job in our big cities, you know, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, Toronto, there are wonderful green spaces. I mean, Toronto is very close to me and High Park is a wonderful place. There's a unique habitat there, Black Oak Savannah. They have a nature center with lots of educational programs. So nature doesn't have to be the untouched frontier. It can be found everywhere, and it isn't necessarily just flora and fauna. I mean, weather, air, water are all part of nature. So those are all things that I uh, suggest when I get this excellent question. Well, Ian, thank you very much for doing this. I learned a lot about environmental education during this episode. Uh, why don't you tell the folks who are listening uh, where they can find you? Yeah, so it's very simply greenteacher.com is our website, and you can find all about our magazine, which is fully digital, our books, our webinars, our podcast, which is called Talking with Green Teachers. You can find that on all of the regular podcast providers, and we also do professional development. You can contact me at ian at greenteacher.com, so just I-A-N at greenteacher.com, and yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Well, Ian, thank you very much. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back on the podcast uh, sometime in the future. Thanks so much, Markham. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Energy Talks. If you'd like to support the Megaphone campaign to grow Energy Media's audience, please visit our website, www.energi.media, and click on Support Energy Media in the navigation bar. I'm your host, Markham Hislop. And I hope you enjoy thoughtful journalism about energy's future.